So real quick question, uh, is anybody in here excited that college football is back? Can I, like, can I get a little amen, amen? Yeah, okay. Yeah, if you don't amen anything else today, right? Uh, man, college football is back. I can't wait for the horns to take it uh, onto the Irish tonight. That's going to be awesome. Um, and then we're praying for you Aggies. We know it's going to be a really long year, but we know it's not... We know it's not going to be near as long as it is for all the Sooners in this house. So um, we're, uh, we are looking forward uh, to an awesome day. The reason I bring that up is because football was kind of the game of choice. And, and I know, like, y'all look at my physical physique and you know that it must have been something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, football was, was kind of the game that I like to play. And it was really the, the sport that once I got into high school, I focused more on than anything else. And so I kind of uh, didn't play a whole lot of other sports. But uh, my coaches, one of the things that they asked me to do, and I remember my sophomore and junior year of high school, is they wanted me to run track. Now, that's pretty laughable, okay? And here's why. At this point, like right now, I weigh 240 pounds. When I graduated high school, I weighed 264 pounds, okay? That's when I graduated. So when I got married, I was like 285 pounds, and uh, like I was just like this bowling ball, okay? Now, here's the deal. Why in the world would I run track? And now, that's a question I've still yet to figure the answer out for, okay? But that was the whole idea. It was like, hey, we want you to run. We think it'll be good for you and, and, and football and and here's the, str the struggle for me was, is that every single time I lined up, I knew two things. Number one, that I was slow. And number two, that I was going to get last every single time. And every time they would just say, hey, two things, run as fast as you can, as hard as you can. But then they would say, and find you a fixed point out in front of you and just run towards it. And I always kind of wondered, like, okay, that, that doesn't make sense. But the goal was is they didn't want me to be looking down at the track. They would rather me find a fixed point out in front and run towards that. Well, years and years later, it began to really come true to me and understand. What they wanted me to do was is run as fast as I could, as hard as I could, towards a fixed point so that I didn't get outside of my lane that I wasn't disqualified for a portion of the race. And the best way to do that was not concentrating at looking down. And so many of us, that's what we do. We want to stay in the lanes. We want to do our best to run our race, but we find ourselves constantly looking at other places re regardless of, of where we're running. And instead of looking at the prize and the finish line, we find ourselves looking at everything else. Like anybody in here that you'd be saying, that, that's me, like I'm guilty of that, Yes. And so this message today as we dive into Hebrews chapter 12 is for all of us in this room because we're all running a race of some kind. And the question is, is what do you have your eyes fixed on? Well, as you enter into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, and it's reminding us of chapter 11, which we covered last week. And we talked about all of the men and the women of faith. We talked about Moses, and we talked about Abraham, and we talked about um, Rahab, and we talked about Noah, and all of these men and women that were great. And we saw their faith. And the reason that Hebrews chapter 12 continues the thought from chapter 11, and the reason that therefore is therefore is so that you and I know that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that we also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, sing, which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the question is, is what are you running towards? And when we run, you need to know that the common theme in this chapter is that we need to run with endurance. 
We need to run with endurance. And you're going to see this come up time and time and time again in endurance. And so here it is. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run. And the goal is, is that as we run, would you realize that you and I are not the only ones that have ever run the race? Like we're not the only ones that have a difficult time. We're not the only ones that have to endure things. I mean, think about it. Noah built a boat and it had never rained. That's incredible faith. But think of all the endurance, all the insults, all the mocking, that, all the jeering that he war- worked through, all the years that he continued to be faithful and build and build and build. Why? Because he set his eyes on something ahead. He endured because there was a prize coming. And he knew that there would be a day where salvation would be found in God and that he would be saved from the flood. And so he endured. And so that's why you and I endure. That's why we lay aside every weight. And the idea of laying aside every weight is that we would not allow things to gravitate or cling towards us. And so like y'all remember the Olympics, right? Okay. And like you, you, you look and you're like, my goodness, why don't they run with anything on hardly? Y'all remember that? Yes. I mean, you got the Russian girl and I mean, she's running and I mean, she looks like me, but she has hardly nothing on. Right. And you're like, oh my goodness, goodness. I mean, Get this, in the early Olympics though, back in the Grecian games when they first started, they ran with no clothes on. The Colosseums would sell out and it wasn't because of the race, right? <laughs> and the idea, and, and this is the idea that the writer of Hebrews is picking up on. He goes, look, we're gonna lay aside all the encumbrances. We're gonna fix our eyes on the prize and we're gonna run well. And we're gonna throw off anything that entangles us. We're not going to worry about sin. We're going to throw that off, the things that we oftentimes look to. And what are we going to look to? In verse 2 it says, and we're going to look to who? Jesus. And so the way you endure the race is to look to Jesus. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Everybody say endure. That is the theme. And so we endure, we run our race that's marked before us because there was one who endured already for us. And so not only is there a great cloud of witnesses that came before us, but we know we can walk in faith, not just because of what God's doing in our lives, but because of what he did in all of the greats' lives, but also because of what Jesus did and what God did in his life. And so Jesus endures the cross and the shame so that we could what? Run our race well. Paul writes to his buddy Timothy and, and um, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, it says this, and, and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, I don't know if you realize or not, but this is what Paul is writing to Timothy before he's going to literally die. Like he is about at the end of his life and he is coming to the very end. He sees the end approaching and that's what he wrote. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This text right here is a text that I get to use in a funeral about once every two or three years. And the reason why is not because that's the only funerals I do, but there's very few of us that we run in such a way that our eyes are constantly on the prize. There are so many of us who we go, we love God, but we always find ourselves looking in different places. But the text says where? Keep your eyes on the author, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, who endured the cross for our sake. And so we know that we run the race, we keep fighting the good fight, we keep the faith. And here's verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also those who, what, have loved his appearing. 
So the idea is, is just as the greats saw him, so will those who run the race. And so the question is, is are you running the race? Are you enduring? Are you throwing off things that seem to tie you down? The cumbersome load that you seem to face. And so we look, we, we look to the one who's endured the cross, who despised its shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is a common theme throughout the book of Hebrews. You keep seeing the author say, and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. And the reason why, and we learned this earlier in the book, is that the Levitical priests, when they would go, they always stood. They were always working in service to God. They always had more to do within the temple. But the high priest, Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work is completely done. It's finished. So think about that. You and I can toss off our weight, our load of sin and shame and hurt, and we can cast our eyes upon him and look to the author and perfect of our faith, Lord Jesus. Why? Because he's endured the cross. He's conquered its shame. He's won the victory of sin and death and darkness, and he's given us the right to live in him. So the question is, is what are your eyes fixed on? And in verse 3 it says, And consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He goes, look at, look at you and, and all the things. And, and oftentimes we look at our lives and it, it's, not, it's not uncommon for us to throw a little pity party, is it? I mean, it's not uncommon for us to go, God, what are you doing in my life? God, give me some other visual sign, some reminder that you're with me. And here it is. He goes, but listen, have you ever, verse four, gotten to the point in your struggle against sin that you've not resisted the point of shedding your blood? He goes, how much do you really hate your sin? Have you ever shed blood for your sin? The idea really is what you see in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that idea is not of a funeral passage, and you might have heard somebody kind of preach that, but hey, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted, and God, you know, cast all your cares upon him. And that's not the goal. That's not really the point of the text. The point of the text is, is blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who grieve after their sin in such a way that they run from it, that their hearts are broken, for they shall find comfort. Why? Because it is, as Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. I know that nothing good lives in me apart from Christ. And so when you get to that point that you run from sin and you throw off things that easily tie you down and you look to Jesus, you begin to realize what he's done, but you also identify with that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hey, do you hate your sin so much that you're ready to throw it off as to the point of shedding your blood? Because here's what you need to know. God hated sin so much that instead of punishing you in your sin, he decided to punish his son for your sake. But for you and I to believe that God does not deal with sin is a lie. Matter of fact, for you to believe as one philosophy professor told one of our sophomores in college, he called me this week. He goes, man, pray for me, pray for my professor, pray for my class. Because the question that he posed is, what if there was a father who, who his son was really far off and they were estranged, they hadn't met anybody? And they hadn't met each other. And finally, that father, he reaches out to the son and they meet for the very first time. But upon that son coming to know his father, he says, no, get away from me for I never knew you. He goes, what do you say about a God like that? And he poses this question to a bunch of freshmen and sophomores in college. And this kid is going, well, Brandon, I mean, I argued. I mean, I tried to stand up the best I could. And the point is, is this. Do you understand 
that God has to punish sin. And the better question is, do you understand that you and I are sinners? Because it's not that God doesn't love those who are far off. The bottom line is, is that God is so holy that he has to punish things that are unholy. But God loved you so much that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Romans 5.8. See, the, guy, the, the thing is, is that God demonstrates his love in this, Christ that he resisted the point of shedding blood. Like Christ lays his life down so that you may have life in him. And so you have to choose. Are you going to do things in your own merit, in your own strength, and you get life in you? Or are you going to die to yourself, take up the cross and follow Jesus? Deny your agenda, run the race that's marked out for you because you look to the author perfecter of your faith. And do you, do you, do you run from sin as if you look to your heavenly father? Do you see the picture? And see, the, the philosophy professor has it all wrong. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's that he's all holy, and he's a consuming fire, which we'll see in the very last verse of this chapter. And he has to punish things that are sinful. And he doesn't desire to punish you. It said in Isaiah 53, it pleased God to put a rod on the back of his son, that he led him as a sheep silent for his shears. Jesus has laid it down for you. There is nothing more for you to do. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is finished. The question is, is will you look to him? Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, shake your head right here. Like, yeah, 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 I get it. Will you look to him or will you continue to look other places for your worth and your value? Verse five says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Okay, hold on. I don't really like the idea of discipline. And there are many of us in here that we don't like the word discipline. We hate discipline. But verse 6 says, but the, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son that he receives. The idea is expounding um, on Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. It's after Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and he may make your path straight. Keep going down. And it says that God will discipline those he loves. Why? Because it shows you that you are legitimate sons. Like if you face discipline, it's because he knows you and he cares for you and he, he loves you. Matter of fact, it says that he'll chastise every single person he receives. It means there is no one in this room that knows God that is exempt for the purposes of discipline. You know, does that make sense? But look what's true of discipline. It is for discipline, verse seven, that you have to it, what? What's the word? Endure. Oh, Lord, why do we have to endure so much? Because he endured to the point of shedding his blood. He took all the hostility. And so he's saying, look, I have taken the worst of it. I've taken the brunt of it. Now you just need to keep your eyes fixed on me. Endure. Run your race well. It's marked out before you. Don't get out of your lane. Keep running, running, running. Endure. Endure hardship. Endure discipline. Endure sin. Endure suffering. All the things. Why? Because Christ is enough. And he's treating you as sons. So endure because he's treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And that is such a valid question. If you are a son, then you should receive discipline. For, what's, for what people are sons and have not been disciplined? I'll tell you. The only sons that have not received discipline are sons that did not have a father. And there are many, many, many kids in this world right now that they wander aimlessly with very little hope because they never had a father that disciplined them. And they are, in a sense, estranged or, in a sense, illegitimate. 
Now, there are many of us in here who we had a father and he disciplined, but he disciplined harshly. And so we may not have seen a good view of discipline. But here's what you need to know too, is look at verse eight. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate ch- uh, children and not sons. Besides, verse nine, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father and the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short term as it seemed best to who? Look at that. Y'all with me? As it seemed best to who? It means a lot of parents disciplined as it seemed best to them. And as you look at our lives, particularly those of us that are in our 20s or in our 30s and we have children, we discipline that in a way that seems best to who? Us. I don't have to agree with you on the form of discipline because I'm disciplining my children who I'm responsible for to God the way that seems best to who? Y'all with me? Me. Same for you. And there are all different forms of punishment, really, or discipline, right? You agree with that? And I would say in our culture, we can't agree on a lot of things. And one of those things we can't agree on are what forms? Is it, is it time out? Are we just going to be friends with them? You know, do we spank them? Do we sit them in a the corner? I mean, there are all different things out there, right? But you and I discipline in a way that seems best to who? Us. And there are many of us in this room that our form of discipline is shaped by the view of our parents. Good, bad, and indifferent. There are many of us in, in this room that we discipline in such a way that's opposite of our parents. Our parents were... Um, in a sense, they exasperated us. They were over the top. They were so strict that it was the picture of, of Ephesians 6. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. And so what you decide is when you're a parent, you're going to do everything opposite of them. And so you're on the far end, and you are, I just want to be friends with my kids. I just, I want to be friends. I want them to know that they love me. And so you want to have like nighttime talk every single night. You want to talk and you want to almost have like this sleep over kind of idea like, hey, we're just going to be friends the rest of our lives. And you don't discipline at all. But your view and what seems best to you is as you saw it. There are some of you in here that you don't have any form of parenting because you never had parenting. And so you're learning as you go. And then there's others of us in here that you said we had parenting. And it was good, but there are several things that we need to adapt and change. And there are a few things that maybe we didn't see in our lives that we would like for our kids to see. The reason we discipline, though, our sons and our daughters is why? Because we love them. Do you see that? We love them. The reason that I discipline my son, the reason I discipline, I say my son, because there's one of them that seems to get more disciplined than the other one, right? (laughs) Uh, The reason I discipline my sons and my daughter is because I love them. And I know that even though they are cute little kids, that if they're left to their own ways, they will wander aimlessly. They will cause much destruction and havoc in people's lives, and moreover, much distractions, havoc in their own lives. And so the reason we have boundaries and the reason that I encourage them to stay in the lines is because I love them. And so you need to know that the Lord disciplines those who are his and that he, what? Loves. Wow. If you look at it like that, then you go, man, discipline doesn't seem as bad. Like discipline doesn't seem as bad if we know that's there because he loves us. But look at this following verse. Look at 
the latter part of verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in what? Holiness. He, sh- he disciplines for us and our good that we may share in his holiness. And so you need to know that we discipline oftentimes with wrong motives. We oftentimes discipline out of anger. You ever done that? You ever discipline and then you throw out a consequence and you're like, oh my gosh, that was one of the worst consequences I could have ever thrown out. But in your anger and in your hostility, you just said something. You're like, I have no idea how I'm going to keep my kids from ice cream for the next month. (laughs) But God never disciplines in a way that's unjust. For every single form of discipline is for a purpose. All of it is so that we share in his holiness. He never misses the mark. He never makes a mistake in his discipline and in his judgment. He's always right, he's always fair, and he's always just. Isn't that an incredible thing? Verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. How much discipline is going to hurt? Some of it? All of it. All of it. All, All forms of discipline from God are painful. And they're all painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The reason that we allow God to discipline and train us is for the purposes of righteousness. Do you see that? So my encouragement to you is to take the long-term view. Because the short-term view says, God, I I don't really like what you're doing in my life. But if you'll take the long-term view, then you'll see that he's working all things for your good according to those what, who love him. And that's really the goal is that you go, I, I'm facing suffering or and, and here I'm, in, I'm entangled and there's sin that God's trying to, to kind of draw me from. But whether it's suffering or discipline or any of those forms, it's to know that God cares for you and his goal in all of it is to make you more holy. And so he is good and he's gracious and he's kind. And his desire is to allow you to experience pain and trade it one day for a fruit of righteousness. And I think there's so many of us in this room, at least me, that there have been times in in my ministry and my personal life that I've been quick to go, God, what are you doing here? God, I, I don't understand why we're going through this. God, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. God, I don't know. And, and we, we play so many mind games. We're like, okay, is it because of our sin? Or is it because of our ignorance? Or is it because, you know, God, you just want to prove a point and you want to strengthen me? Listen to me. Regardless of what it is, there are a few things that you need to know. You can pout or you can praise him. I mean, in, in discipline in our house, I can tell you what happens every time. At this point, they pout. They stick that lip out. They quiver. They fuss. They fight. But I'll tell you, there's a day later on, and it's, it's the long-term view, that they'll come back and they'll say, thank you for that. I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't agree with it, and I certainly didn't like it. It was painful. But if you'll take the long-term view, then you see that God's working things out for your good. And so instead of pouting, you you have a chance to praise him. Now, does that mean that it's all pleasant? No. Matter of fact, the scripture says all of it's painful. All of it's painful. All of it hurts. All of it's difficult. But if you take the long-term view, then here's what you see. Listen. When you praise him, this is what you're praising him for, okay? You ready for it? There's two things. 
One is he only disciplines those that are his. So if he's disciplining you, then what a sure sign. You go, well, wait, wait a second, Brandon, wait a second, wait a second, hold on. You mean to tell me that he only disciplines those that are his? Well, it says that illegitimate sons aren't disciplined. And so here's, I want to clarify something. Matthew, in his gospel, he says that even God allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. It means right now that the evil farmer gets rain. Do you understand? And so God, in his provision, he's going to let rain fall on the just and the unjust. There are going to be evil things that happen to good people, and there are going to be good things that happen to bad people, and that is because of the sin that we now live in. We have a broken, fallen world that oftentimes has us spinning and confused and even questioning God and his goodness. But you need to know that if you face the weight of conviction in your life for your sin, or when you're entangled in things you should not be entangled in, then that's a good thing. Why? Because God convicts and disciplines, and trains in righteousness those that he loves. And so let me give you an example. Let's say that you're at work, and you fly off the handle on someone. I know that would never happen at your work, but let's just say hypothetically it did, okay? And you fly off the handle, and, and depending on your context, if you work in a culture like mine, you never cuss, right? Because you can't, all right? We, I mean, but if you, in your context, you cuss, and you throw some expletives out there and you just really challenge and you throw the, down the hammer and you're ugly, 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 ugly. And you go, well, I'm the boss. I can talk like that. And a couple of hours go by and you just feel the stir. Like the spirit of God is just speaking to you and you know that several things happen. One, according to the scripture that you as Christian, we ought to live self-controlled lives. We ought to be full of love and joy and peace. And you go, in that instance, I did not do any of those things. I wasn't self-controlled. I didn't exhibit love, joy, and peace. And so you feel the spirit just going, it's time to go make some things right. And in that moment, you feel that. And you know, this is going to be awkward and it's going to be painful. I'm going to have to go in there and I'm going to have to go, in a sense, with my tail tucked between my legs and I'm going to have to apologize to my subordinates. And I'm going to have to explain to them that God's not going to allow me to talk to them like that. It's painful. It's not pleasant. But why do we praise him? Because we're sons. And not only are we sons, but the only reason that he wants us to go and make things right is for our good. Did you see that? And so he disciplines those he loves for our good and for his glory. Is it painful? Absolutely, it's painful. And I'll tell you this, though. If you don't face the discipline of the Lord in your life, then here's the deal. You're an illegitimate son. It means you don't know him, and he does not know you. And that's the scariest place to be. I would rather be disciplined by God because I know that it's going to work out for my good, but moreover, I know that I'm his. Therefore, verse 12, because of all this, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Okay? So like when we pout, what are we, what are we getting an option to do? We can, we can droop our hands and we can bend our knees and we can go around and we can pout. Or the picture of praising him is, hey, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that it was, what is lame may not be what? Put out of joint, but rather be healed. The idea is, God, we're going to trust you in this. And in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our discipline, God, we have a choice. We can mope around. We can 
say ridiculous things like you don't love us and you must not be caring for us. Or we can say, no, not only does he love us, but what I'm going through is ultimately for my good, his glory, and for the kingdom of God. And so we're going to walk through this and we're going to strengthen our feeble knees, our weak knees. We're going to lift our hands and we're going to sing to him, even though right now our hearts just don't feel like singing. Because in our minds, we just don't see the outcome. But if we take the long-term view, we know that our future outcome is so much better than what we're dealing with now. My friends, that's why you have to take the long-term view. And the long-term view does not necessarily mean that in a year from now, it's going to be better. The long-term view doesn't mean that, hey, five years from now, I'm going to be out of my suffering, my affliction, and my shame. Do you hear that? Listen to me. The long-term view does not mean like, okay, God, you're just going to work this out for me in the next two or three years. The long-term view is, is that eternity is secure, that the work of the cross is finished, that he is shed to the point of blood for your forgiveness and for your namesake, that everything you endure now, endure, 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 has been paid for. And though you don't see it now, the long-term view says, I know there's more to come, and so I'm going to press on, and I'm going to run my race with perseverance, the race that's marked out for me. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to keep the faith. I'm going to finish the race. And I'll tell you right now, there are pastors, there are church leaders, and there are church members day after day after day that are dropping out of the race. And some of it's because their lack of faith, for some of them it's they never had faith, and for some of them it's because the discipline that they face. But moreover, if you'll take the long-term view, we know that we need each other. And so as we need each other and as we have hard conversations and as we spur each other on towards love and good deeds, chapter 10, as we continue to assemble together, not forsaking the assembling of the saints. Why? Because the day of Christ is approaching. As we keep doing this, listen, the reason we do it is because there's gonna be a day that we gather together as God's people. I don't know if you realize that, but there's a day where all of your, all the people that know God, whether they be Methodist whether they be Baptist, whether they be a Bible church like we are, we're all going to gather together as God's people. And when we do that, we're going to praise God. And you go, well, I don't know about that guy at the last church I was at. No, here it is. He could possibly be there too, okay? So what do we do? We strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without what? Which no one will see the Lord. We strive for peace with everyone. We strive for peace with those who give us grief. We strive for peace with those who, um, they bring out the worst in us. They cause us to have anger and hostility. We strive for peace. As much as it depends on you, you shall live with, with, for peace. With everyone. You pray for those who are your enemies, right? Those who persecute you. Those who curse you. Why? Because... When you exhibit life in the Spirit, you exhibit the characteristics of God. That although you were once an enemy of God, he loved you and calls you now friend. Even though you were once an alien and now you are called what? A daughter, a son. You once lived in darkness, now you walk in the marvelous light of Christ. Why? Because he has accomplished all the things that you and I can't. And so we strive for peace with everyone. So see to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, but it, it many and, and by it many become defiled. So he goes, make sure you live your life in such a way that people don't stumble on you. 
that no one who, who is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau, who said to his birthright for a single meal, he, he sold it for a single meal, that they would miss the mark. Because what did he, he do? He came back afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he found no chance to, to repent, though he sought it with tears. You don't, you don't get to see God as lamb and lion. You either see him as lamb or you see him as lion. In the view right now, he says, you can see me as lamb. You can see that I laid my life down so that you may come to God in peace. Or you can choose your own way. You can live your own life. You can forsake the birthright and the blessing of God through Jesus, and you can do things your own way, and you'll meet him as, uh, as lion. That's, that's the picture of every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before heaven and earth that he is Lord. There's going to be a day, regardless of your belief system, that we will bow but you'll either know him as lamb or you'll meet him as lion. And so the idea here, though, is if you know him as lamb, though, why would we live our lives in any other way than for our good and his glory? Because if we wander around with a root of bitterness in our life or we wander around and we do things that are defiled in his presence, if we're sexually immoral or um, we're greedy or we're slanderers or we're drunkards or for any of that reason, we're full of anger and malice and strife, then how are people going to see the God that we serve? Uh, I, we had a, a picture of this in, in our church in Dallas. We had two boys that came from Russia. They were adopted by a family, and we know this family very well and still keep up with them today. But when they got to the States, um, they were seven and nine, respectively. And these two boys were scavengers. Um, they were orphans on the streets of Russia. They went in and out of orphanage, and every now and then, though dad was not in the picture and nowhere to be found, mom would take them in at her convenience. The thing is that when she took them in, she always gave more love and assistance to the younger one. And so she kind of kept the older one at a distance. But because of the life and the hostility they had faced, they would become a dog-eat-dog scavenger mentality. It was the survival of the fittest. It was the strongest man wins. And so they had no problem with, st with starving to feed themselves. They had no problem with um, ganging up on someone if that made them more prestigious. And they came over here to the States and we have this nice little democracy and we want kids to sit down in their seat and just act what, like, like good kids. The problem was is they had a very difficult time fitting into this culture. And the biggest problem was is that the culture they were fitting in, they were seeing things opposite of what they were being told. They were be told, being told by Christian parents who had adopted them, that, hey, you are going to be a legitimate sons. We're not going to look on you as adopted. We're never, ever going to get rid of you. And I'll tell you, this family has gone through so much to love these boys. Addictions, drugs, rages of anger. Things that were laid out in seven and nine years in a communist country of fighting for each other and fighting for themselves only to come here and to be told that you should live at peace with everyone. The problem was is that the kids that they were going to church with when they played basketball together, didn't they didn't live at peace. The only difference was is that they knew how to fight for themselves in such a way that they would win. And so I remember in student ministry, conversation after conversation after conversation with parents. These kids don't need to be keep coming to our student ministry. One bloody nose after the other. 
one fight, one argument at the other. And there was such hostility and rage and bitterness. The problem was, though, it wasn't simply coming from them. It was coming from a, a bunch of kids that claimed on Wednesday nights to love God, yet their hearts were far from him. And it was the most confusing thing to a culture of boys who weren't used to seeing a father love their sons well. One of them right now is still a prodigal, running, running, running. And one of them, the oldest, has come to faith in Christ and is living it out. And Kelly always said this about Nathan. He said, if Nathan ever does finally trust in God, which it took him years and years and years of a hardened heart to do it, he'll always be sold out. And that has been the case with him. But I'll tell you that you and I, as legitimate sons, need to know that God disciplines us for a fruit of righteousness. And the reason that you and I should live faithful lives is because there are people out here who are wandering without a father. They may not be from Russia, but they are orphans. And they need someone to give them a picture of God's grace. And it could be you in the workplace. It could be you in your neighborhood. It could be your kids in school. And I'll tell you the most confusing thing and the hurting thing throughout the church and our nation today and in Western culture is a bunch of fakes. And so why do we keep on? Why do we press on? Well, here it is. It's because <laughs> of verse 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And what you see right there in verses 18 through 21, it simply is showing you a picture of Mount Sinai. You and I always say, God, just show me one more sign. Just show me one more thing. Lord, I just need a lightning bolt moment. I just need you to speak to me audibly. Listen to me. The people of Israel had that, and they said, Moses, tell him not to talk to us anymore. We cannot bear to have conversations with him. They trembled with fear. What I'm saying to you is this. You need not know God any other way than as a father disciplining his son. If you have to see God face to face, then your faith is not very strong. And you go, wow, what do you mean? What I'm saying is this. If you are his son, then you will see his reproof, his correction, his training for righteousness sake. Which is exactly 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That's the word of God. It is alive. It is inspired. Why? For the purpose of training, correcting uh, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. That's what God does for his people. But you have come to Mount Zion, speaking of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angel, angels in the festival gathering, and to the assembling of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was the very first one that made a sacrifice to God. And he goes, and while that was an acceptable sacrifice and his brother hated him for it, there's one who's made a better sacrifice and his name is Jesus and we love him for it. But the picture of 18 all the way through 24 is this. You and I need to decide, are we going to trust in Mount Sinai, a place where there was law, 
or are we going to trust in Mount Zion, which refers to old time, the, the people uh, of God, but more in particular, the, the mount in which Jerusalem set. But now it is the house of God, the spiritual house being built up in which Christ is the cornerstone and we are living stones. It is an eternal kingdom, Mount Zion, in which we will one day see Christ face to face. We will dwell with him forever as the bride of Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And the picture that the writer of Hebrews says, you've got to take your pick. Do you want the old covenant on, on, on Sinai where you keep saying, hey, God, just let, me, let me see you. Oh, no, I can't. It's too much for me where it's law. Do you want the old covenant where it was a sacrifice of bulls and, and goats and it was a continual thing? Or do you want the new Zion in which there was a mediator who appeased all your sin and it was the perfect spotless lamb, his name is Jesus, who took away the sins once and for all? What do you want? And the writer says, if it's the latter, then you need to know that God will discipline those he loves. Why? Because the long-term view, one day, it will all be made right. And so then verse 25 says, So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? He goes, if, if they didn't escape God's wrath in the old covenant on Sinai, then what makes you think that we'll, we'll miss out or, or escape it now? I mean, the idea is this, is that you either know God and he is your father or he is not. And at the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yes, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And so there's a picture in Haggai chapter six, um, um, chapter 2, verse 6, that the earth would shake. And we say, see here, the writer of Hebrew goes, and yes, before we see God face to face, and before we enjoy Zion, the earth will shake one more time. And this is what it says, verse 27. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, Things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us what? Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's the bottom line. You ready? And we're going to close it with this. We endure, we press on, we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Why? Because of a true and better Jesus and true and better Zion. There's more to come. There is more to come, yet you and I are running a race and we oftentimes are looking down to stay in our lanes rather than keeping our eyes fixed on him. And listen, when we look down, we keep our eyes on things that will one day burn up. And so if you and I focus on that next promotion or on that house, or if you spend all your time on the weekends mowing a yard and a lawn so that everybody looks to you and goes, wow, you got the most beautiful place in Van Zandt County, then I'm pretty sure that we need to realize that much of that's going to be burned up. And I have no problem with a nice lawn. I have no problem with a nice house. But if those are your focus, you need to know that there's going to be a day in which that will not exist anymore. Why? Because those things that will be shaken are going to destroy it. And only thing that will remain are those that are not shaken, which has to do with what Christ is doing in your hearts for all of eternity accomplished through your pain and suffering and his discipline in your life for your good and his glory. Does that make sense? And so I would say that we live in a pretty shaky time, wouldn't you? I mean, think about this. This, this isn't the 80s and 90s anymore. I mean, it's not, the, it's not the end of the Cold War. It's not the Berlin Walls just falling. It's, it's not the you know, hockey team that uh, overcame a, a miracle game uh, of the Russian team. 
it's, it's the U.S. where we can't really right now agree on anything. We can't agree on anything economically. Socially, we're as divided as we've probably been in a long time. Spiritually, I think if you talk to people after people, they would say that we are divided. We can't get on the same page on a lot of issues that are foundational in our faith. And we look and you go, this is as shaky of a time as I've known in a long time. And so the question is, how do you endure that? You endure it with a long-term view knowing that there is a kingdom that will never be shaken. And it's already purchased, it's bought, and the author and the perfecter of that faith is seated at the right hand of God. And there's nothing that you and I now face in our society in which he is surprised about. And there's nothing that we're facing that he has not written about. There is nothing that we are facing that will alarm him ever. And so we hold the long-term view. And so let me just... I guess if you were trying to sum it up in one word, like, okay, how in the world do I keep this whole message like throughout the week, you know? Because that's the goal, believe it or not. Maybe you just, though pain may pierce your heart, our pain is redeemed by what? The future promise of paradise. So like right now, your heart is pierced and you just have a pain and, and you just have things that are happening in your life. Though, though your heart is pierced, with pain. You hold fast. You run the race. Why? Because it's redeemed. Why? Because there's a future promise of paradise. Okay? If you're like, whoa, 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 that's way too long. Way too long. Okay? Then let's just say it like this. Endure because eternity is worth it. Endure. Press on. Keep running the race. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. God disciplines those he loves for your good and for his glory. Let me pray for you, church. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We ask, God, that you would help us to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Help us to know that we should throw off things that easily entangle us. God, that we should look to you, that we should run with perseverance and persistence. Lord, help us to keep fighting the good fight. Help us to run the race. Help us to keep the faith. And in an age where everything seems to be shaky, in an age where boundaries are less clear than they've ever been, may we know that the boundaries of your word are clear and they are for our good and for your glory. And so may we stay steadfast to the word of God. May we be immovable. May we be a living stone. May we be a spiritual house being built up for God. And it has nothing to do with buildings. It has everything to do with the work that you're accomplishing in our hearts and our lives. God, help us to run the race. Help us to stay steadfast and immovable. Help us to know that we shall endure because eternity is worth it. We love you, God. We ask that you would be with us. Make our path straight. In Jesus' name, amen.